Welcome to another episode of Pod Deux Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Williams. Today we are Pod One, as my partner in crime, Clara, cannot be with us today, since she's traveling to Norway. Today we're continuing our lead up to the Dance on Camera Festival at Lincoln Center, and we're really excited today to have Ron Hansa with us, who is executive director of the Manhattan-based production company Moving Pictures, Since founding the company, he's overseen hundreds of television and film projects for its diverse clientele. Moving Pictures has distinguished itself as a creative studio for original programming, documentaries, and commercial projects. Its work has been recognized by a wide range of industry awards, and Ron's own television credits include CBS Reports, Now with Bill Moyers, Saturday Night Live, America's Most Wanted, ESPN's Battle of the Giants, Sesame Street, and more. Hansa has long had a personal passion for directing performing arts for film and television. He produced and directed the award-winning documentary The Men Who Danced roughly 30 years ago, which will screen at this year's upcoming Dance on Camera Festival and will be honored, as well as his more recent documentary Never Stand Still, which won Best Documentary at the Dance Camera West Film Festival in Los Angeles, as well as the San Francisco Dance Film Festival. So today we're very excited to get Ron's perspective of dance from his world in filmmaking. So welcome, Ron. Thank you. Nice to be here. How did you get into The Men Who Danced? What was your entry into that, and what was that like? I mean, I had seen dance before um, in performance, but I had the opportunity as a production person, I was part of a film crew, to go to Jacob's Pillow, uh, which is a dance festival up in the Berkshires. And it was my first time going there. And I went there on an assignment for actually um, uh, the uh, United States Information Agency. This is a government agency that used to make cultural films that they would export to overseas. And we went there to do a story on a choreographer, Laura Lubavitch. And Lar was uh, really in his prime at that point as a choreographer and as a dancer. And we did a story about his company, um, who was in residence at Jacob's Pillow. And that was my first real acknowledgement that there was this place called Jacob's Pillow and this festival about dance. And I was just blown away by just the complete immersion that dance you know, embodied at this festival. I don't come to this as a dancer. I truly come as a filmmaker and, and as a person who is very interested in arts and in the history of arts. So I got intrigued by just the whole exposure and interest in this. And I learned while I was up there, Jacob's Pillow was about to celebrate the next season, their 50th anniversary. I believe it was 1981 when I went up for this first assignment, and, and, and then it was 82 that the 50th anniversary was held. And I pitched at the time, there was an executive director of the pillow, was a woman named Liz Thompson, a really wonderful woman. And I said, Liz, wouldn't it be really great if we could come back and make a film about the 50th anniversary? And she looked at me and said, well, that'd be interesting, but who would pay for it? That question comes up pretty early in a conversation. I was really early in my career, and I had never really made a full-length documentary before. I I just wanted to, but I hadn't really done that. I mean, I had worked on a lot of films, and I, at that point in my career, I was a cameraman and a 
a technical support person, but I, I, I really felt this was a unique opportunity to make a film about this place. You know, we did raise a small amount of money, and we went back the following season, and we started filming what we thought would be a film that would honor this institution and 50 years of dance making at, at this place called Jacob's Pillow. But it evolved, and how it evolved was really unique. As I studied and learned more about the history of this place, the founding of Jacob's Pillow was really kind of concurrent with the establishing of a dance company that a, a gentleman, Ted Sean, Ted Sean was a founder of Jacob's Pillow, but also was a choreographer and dancer by his own right, uh, had a huge career in the turn of the century, starting in the early 1900s. And now we're um, in Jacob's Pillow around 1930s, and he basically went up there to um, get out of Manhattan and, and start something very new in his interest. And his interest was to establish the credibility of men in dance. And he actually, um, through a little bit of time, it took him a little time to get the you know various dancers, but he actually put together the first all-male dance company in, in the United States. And this company, um, he choreographed to, it was a obviously very masculine, you know, kind of work-related, labor-related kind of man's activity that he was interested in expressing in the choreography. To get back to this 50th anniversary film, in the course of filming, about midway into the summer, there's a very important person involved in this, Norton Owen, who's today the director of preservation at Jacob's Pillow. Uh, Norton had invited uh, the original men dancers, who are now all in their probably late 70s, early 80s, to come back for a reunion. And most of these men had not been back since they performed and danced there in the 30s. So we had no idea who was if 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 they were all even you know coming back, or if they were alive, or if they were going to you know respond to this invitation. And as it turned out. Of the original, I believe, nine men dancers, eight of them came that summer. That's amazing. And it was amazing. Yeah. And, and suddenly my film, which I thought was going to be kind of a bigger scope film about the institution and about dance in general, became, wow, there's yeah. an opportunity to interview these eight original men dancers. And not only their experience dancing at that point in time in their lives and in in, you know, in that in the early 30s but also the the beginnings of what was Jacob's pillow and these dancers these men uh, who were really all in their early 20s some came out of Springfield College um, where Sean was doing some teaching and what's interesting is he employed athletes. Most of these, there was no dance training, formal dance training at that, certainly for men at this point in time. And certainly we're talking about modern versus ballet. I mean, there certainly was ballet training for men, but even that was a bit obscure um, relative to access. He basically put together a bunch of athletes and he found these guys, some were track stars, some were gymnasts, some were basketball players. And he put this ensemble of men together and started doing these demonstrations, lecture demonstrations. And people locally would come from Lenox and 
uh, different surrounding towns, and they would come and watch these lecture demonstrations. And Sean would explain his uh, what he was doing and his choreography. I think part of what the Men Who Dance portrays is how that evolved into what today is Jacob's Pillow. And so it, it, the, the subject of the film is, is principally this dance company, but also how it impacted on the founding of, of Jacob's Pillow. Yeah, that's amazing. I recently saw the film, and I was amazed at some of the context that the film provided. It didn't occur to me, although I'm somewhat familiar with the history of Ted Sean and Jacob's Pillow, and I've been a few times myself and absolutely love the festival, I didn't realize Ted Sean really was the first person who legitimized dance for males. He really was the first one to bring it to multiple cities throughout the U.S. The Ted Sean Dance Company went to 600 cities. So in a way, he brought modern dance or contemporary dance to new audiences throughout the U.S. while at the same time normalizing the role of men in dance. So that's really pretty amazing. It is, and I think they barnstormed across the country, and uh, obviously they got different receptions. Uh, I mean, there were times when they were actually threatened at the at the door. I mean, it, this was really different for a lot of people. It wasn't uh, socially acceptable per se, um, and I think uh, they broke a lot of new ground and uh, you know broke broke boundaries in many many ways. And they also planted a lot of seeds. I, I think fundamentally. I think their effort, because they disbanded right before World War II. Uh, some of them were drafted into the war. And I think Sean knew he couldn't sustain this company uh, for many reasons. Um, maybe part of it was an artistic interest to move on to other things. But he had really, really championed this this kind of elevating the role of men in dance. You know, I don't think he was the only person participating in this interest, but he certainly was, was one of the pioneers of that. I just think they planted seeds for so many people that got to see them or, or, or had some exposure to this that had never seen anything like this before, it definitely planted these seeds, certainly men in dance and women in dance. I mean, it just was very, very uh, new at that moment in time. I believe their, their first tour, you have to remember this during the Depression, and the, you know, the ability to move around the country and, and do these, these uh, performances, they were, they were really just, I mean, we're talking about a bunch of guys in a station wagon with all their own equipment, all their own lighting, all their own drop cloths to put down where they had to perform. They would perform in not only legitimate theaters, but they would perform in rodeos and churches, in, in gymnasiums and basketball courts. I mean, you name it, that was a venue that they would, they would perform in. So it was a, a tough time. The stories that we have of the men, not only of their interest in to execute Sean's choreography, but they were um, road warriors. They were out there, their own roadies and lighting and you name it. Uh, they, there was no support that we know today as a tour where you had a tour manager and you had roadies and you had people prepping the venue before you arrived. They did everything. And they also lived on very modest means. I mean, they were living, even training at the pillow, they were sometimes barely had enough food to, to you know, yeah. eke through the, the tough times. That's right. I remember the film featured that. One of the dancers was talking about 
sometimes their meals would be very meager and just carrots that were stewed. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely sounded like a fascinating time for them to be pioneers in the dance world. And the comparable company that I can think of, the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, I believe it was before Ted Sean Dance Company's time, but they toured all over the U.S. and really all over the world, but especially in the U.S., they were credited with bringing modern dance and contemporary dance to the United States. Within the same generation or the next generation, Ted Sean and his dancers really took it to the next level and legitimized the role of men, which is really amazing. Yeah, I mean, Sean had a history prior to his effort with the men the men dancers. I mean, he was um, um, a principal uh, with uh, uh, Ruth St. Dennis and the Dennis Sean um, company. Dennis Sean was um, now the kind of the equivalent time frame of really early um, pioneering of dance. And it was in his DNA uh, to take dance to the to the to the people to the out to the country if you will and not just try to go to you know major cities or places where maybe dance was a little more in vogue i mean he really wanted to touch the you know any anywhere regionally he could get to and I think he, from his Dennis Sean days of touring the world, I mean, Dennis Sean is a company, um, which my film touches upon, early training of people like Martha Graham and uh, uh, Doris Humphrey were all trained by Dennis Sean techniques. And um, I, I think Ted took a little bit of that and then a lot of his own um, interests and in how men fit into that um, circumstance, because Dennis Sean was very much a, uh, a co-ed effort and actually more women than men because it was hard to find men dancers. There's a, one of the lead principles of the men, the men dancers is the gentleman Barton Muma, and Barton Muma was really the lead dancer and right. per perhaps more trained than any exactly. of the other guys. And part of that training was that he, as a young man, left wherever he lived in Florida and traveled to New York to find Ruth and Ted and trained at Denishawn. So he was one of the few dancers, the men dancers, that had, I would call, formal training. Um, the rest of them were athletes and were guys who were just kind of put together and, and learned to move. Um, but uh, Barton in the film says something I think very unique. He he says, you know, we individually weren't that good. I mean, ta talented wise or training, we we really weren't great dancers. But the ensemble of dancers, when they put the whole, you know, choreographed energy of all these men on stage, it became something else. It became something very theatrical and something no one has seen before. Yeah. So you speak very well about the film and you have the history down really well. So I imagine as a documentary filmmaker, you have to be so intimate with the material that you become an authority on the material as you sound like you are today. Well, I've learned a lot, but I, I, I always... Um, um, there's people who are real dance historians that know so much more about this than I do. But as a filmmaker, um, your job is to learn the subject you're making a film about. And I think you, you, you know, that's what's exciting about making films. You, you are a student of that subject while you're making that film. Um, I think one has to be reminded that there are people who always come to this with a lot more expertise and knowledge than you do as a filmmaker, but that's who you get to interview and speak to and inf get influenced by. 
Um, but my interest in dance um, is performance. Of course, I, I love filming dancers and the human form through space, as any filmmaker would, would express. But I like to put dance in historical context. To me, it's, um, it's nice to see dance on a stage, but frankly, um, filmed. But I, I'd rather go see it live than necessarily just on, you know, as a performance. So for me, a real interesting um, any documentary filmmaker will tell you it's the context or putting what you're speaking about in some kind of point of view or some perspective that gives it context to the time and the effort and what the creative thrust was. So that's what, what really I was interested in. That's great. And it's interesting. You said that you started off with this idea that you would make the documentary about the history of Jacob's Pillow, which is so full of amazing history. But then as these former Ted Sean dancers were invited back to the pillow and you were able to catch them in interviews and whatnot, suddenly your point of view changed or the context changed a little bit. Um, how do you relate that to documentary filmmaking in general and is that generally the process where as you become more familiar or intimate with the material that perhaps the direction of the documentary changes? That's right. Uh, I think what happens when you um, make a decision to make a film is you first obviously have some intrinsic interest in the subject and you have some ac access to the, to, to the subject. I mean, accessibility is everything in terms of uh, bringing some uniqueness to to an audience of why you're making this film. But in the process, I think, hence, it's very important to have a point of view and, and a sense of what you're trying to do. But the process of filmmaking, um, one needs to be uh, really open to that it's a fluid process. And as you're making the film, if you're lucky, developments happen, things occur. Uh, such as the example of these men coming back out of nowhere, you know, to the pillow, and in some cases, uh, uh, you know, close to 40 years later, and, and this reunion became immediately, wow, that's the film. You know, I mean, that's the focus. Now, it could have been other things as well, but um, that was so unique, and their stories were so um, just just in my opinion you know it was like listening to your grandfather tell you about coming across on the on the Titanic <laughs> and in that case they didn't make it but the point is they're really witness to to a, a really unique time in history a, a very pivotal time and um, so to get back to that I think a filmmaker needs to be open to at, even though you have a point of view and a sensibility of what you're doing and why you're making it uh, if you're lucky, your subject will start moving and, and opening up and your ability to reframe and rethink how you want to work with that subject is, is something you, you have to constantly be thinking about. So what was it like coming back to Jacob's Pillow roughly 25 years later to make the film Never Stand Still? Well, it's a really good question because I, you know, I, I never lost my interest in dance, but I, uh, I, I moved on. My career, fortunately, I was very uh, um, able. I started my own company uh, back in oh, maybe 
late 80s, and I uh, spent a lot of time working on, you know, what I'd call other documentaries, but also uh, television shows and all kinds of different sectors in the TV space. And, and, you know, it was a, it, it still continues to be what I do today, um, although I, have, I continue working in the arts and making performance work and, and dance work. Um, I, pay, I pay the rent by making commercial work. And I say commercial work, things that are seen on television or cable or, or um, even corporate work. We, we've done a, a whole variety of, of high-end corporate communications work. So... Uh, what I'm trying to say is I, I kind of got predisposed in making a living <laughs> and producing and learning and, and getting my craft. I mean, I mean, the other opportunity was I was working with more and more talented people around me and I was able to learn more. So the point is I, I kind of left the dance scene. I, I shot a couple things for um, Lincoln Center Dance Collection, and I was involved a little bit, but I really was not active in the, in the dance um, space. And then, um, oddly enough, I mean, it's, it's, there's some symmetry here, um, The Pillow was about to celebrate their 75th anniversary. And I went back and I said to the powers to be, I said, you know... I really never felt I made that film I really wanted to make about this bigger story of Jacob's Pillow's um, um, unique position in the dance world. And I would very much like to make this film. And um, at this moment in time, Ella Bath was the executive director of of The Pillow. And she harbored the same interest. She said, you know, no one's made a really definitive film about Jacob's Pillow and its history. But more than that, we didn't want to make a film that put the pillow into kind of a museum setting. Like this is like this place and it used to be this. And it, it still today is an avant-garde, a vanguard, you know, where dance really is happening. And and it sell, And the other unique thing about those that don't know much about Jacob's Pillow, they, um, they program every type of dance imaginable. So we're not just talking about modern, but ballet and, and extremely uh, progressive forms of dance uh, in terms of uh, uh, very avant-garde stuff or rap or I mean, there's no movement that's not celebrated up there. So it's a very vibrant um, dance community. Very. So so now the 75th is coming up, and I make, again, an effort to raise some money to make this film, which we were uh, able to do not in one complete, you know, uh, um, uh, initial run, but over time we raised money incrementally. And we went up for two, that, that film, Never Stand Still, uh, was released in 2013, and we actually started shooting that around 2006. And I actually shot that film over two seasons because I, I had at that point a, an opinion of what dance companies I wanted to film to represent this place called Jacob's Pillow. So I used a, I almost envisioned the film as a season, but the companies that I wanted to represent as different genres of dance weren't all up there in one season. So it took me two seasons to handpick the choreographers and dancers I wanted to have in the film. 
Very nice. Which included people like Mark Morris and Merce Cunningham and um, uh, Suzanne Farrow and just so many amazing people um, um, that you know allowed us to work with them and and, and film them. And um, so anyway, that's that's how Never Stand Still evolved. And it is a bigger scope film. It's a longer film. Um, it's a full-length feature film. And uh, it, it was really uh, a window, again, into this unique festival. Yeah. I actually saw the film when it opened in New York City. And I remember just feeling very, really emotional towards the end. It was just such a great celebration of the festival. But it ended up being a celebration of the history of dance in America at the same time. So it was just really well made, and I commend you and applaud the work that you put into it. Oh, thank you. It really shows that you do have this interest in dance in a historical context, and I think that is so important for a dance documentary. And as you were working with these different artists and whatnot, were there any pieces of history or additional information that you learned along the way that you were able to sort of inflect in the film? Well, I mean, the larger theme in, in Never Stand Still, I think, is this community. And, and, and that's really what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in, in filming communities. And, and, and the Pillow is really a community of, of dancers for, you know, in a very unique dance world. And yet, as I said earlier, they celebrate all kinds of movement. It, it's not uh, looking at one type of dance. And I think one of the themes that, come out of, that comes out of the film Never Stand Still is that all movement, any kind of movement, should be celebrated. Absolutely. And should be looked at as something uh, valuable and, and, and worth taking a look at or, or being you know exposed to in some way. And I think what I learned from so many different choreographers is, first of all, you know, the dance life and the dance world, I mean, dancers have a really hard life. I mean, they, it's physically demanding. Uh, they, they only have so many years in their career to really be at their, at their peak performance level. Um, the training is amazing. I mean, how much time and effort goes into training. But what I always like to say, because I've also, I've done a lot of sports. I mean, uh, in my other life or career of, of doing, you know, TV work, I've done a lot of sport-related work, and I've, I've done, I've interviewed a lot of sports people, whatever. Mm -hmm. And athletes, I mean, dancers are athletes, but the difference, and I'm being a bit broad here because I'm not trying to say all, you know, all football players or hockey players aren't smart, but dancers are really smart people, and they're really articulate about their craft and Definitely. their art. So as a filmmaker, to interview a dancer, or in particular a choreographer, mm -hmm. is so much more um, insightful than speaking to a hockey player. <laughs> I can just imagine. So that's part of the attraction. Yeah. Uh, and the dance community is very welcoming. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I have a, a quick story. I mean, this goes back, way back to my early, early days of... Uh, of um, you know the beginnings of <laughs> of working in video, but we were. Um, it, I was 
still in college at this time, but we were involved in the very early days of, of getting um, the first video equipment that was accessible to independent filmmakers. And these were um, port they were referred to Sony made them. They're called Sony Portapack. And it was really a portable um, video camera and recorder. I mean, this thing weighed like 35 pounds and the camera weighed about 19 pounds. Mm -hmm. So it was anything but portable, but it was portable because it <laughs> ran on batteries. But it was the first equipment that you could really, um, without being part of a TV station or being part of a, you know, a, an institution where, you know, you, you could acquire or get. We, we had written a grant through the psychology department and uh, th there was this notion that we we're going to film, um, you know, therapy sessions with this video gear so that we could have feedback to the, you know, to the panel or whatever. It was all a ruse to get our hands on this equipment so we could go out in the street and make movies, which is what we did. And um, what I'm leading up to is at, the, at that time, I was involved in a group of people, um, uh, kind of an independent community of filmmakers, and we worked out of West 36th Street. And above us uh, was a dance company uh, of Murray Lewis, uh, Alan Nikolai Murray Lewis. And that was my first exposure to dance because when they learned that we had this equipment, they would invite us up to their dance you know, space and we would film the dancers. And they were just blown away that they could you know, record a dance sequence and then play it back and the dancers could see it immediately. Mm -hmm. And I know in this day and age, that sounds like, wow, you know, yeah. we do that every day. Yeah. But in that moment in time, that was very special. So a lot of what I learned early on about dance was Alan Nikolai and Mary Lewis telling me how to shoot dance. And to this day, That's great. I think about some of the things they, they shared with me about movement and negative space and positive space and you know, uh, to get to the point, one of the things I remember um, Murray Lewis saying to me, he said, if you shoot a dancer, you always have to shoot their knees because if they, if you, if you not just close up their knees, but if you follow their knees, you will always know where the dancer is going because they can't go anywhere without their knees. <laughs> and in terms of pivot and, and where they're, you know, when you, when you photograph something, you want to kind of have a sense of where it's going, not where it is, because it's the next thing that you had to prepare for. You know, once you have a great frame, great, but where are they going? <laughs> right. Anticipate. Anticipation. And, and mm -hmm. Murray was really good about, you know, uh, isolating parts of the body and, and describing that as really the place that you, as a, as a filmmaker, had to look at as a joint to make to have a sense of where things were moving. Yeah. So many things are coming full circle for you. The Men Who Danced is going to be premiered or shown again at the Dance on Camera Festival. And next week, Alwyn Nikolai, the company, is doing a retrospective at the Joyce, um, which I'm planning to see. So I'm excited to see that. Yeah, I, I hope to attend as well. And it will be really interesting to to see that. Uh, they were, again, terrific in so many ways. I mean, Alan Nikolai was theatrically brilliant. I mean, he, he brought a lot of unique sets and just the, you know, multimedia kind of early, early stuff into, into the, you know, modern dance. So it should be really, really interesting to see. So do you have any advice for filmmakers today to raise money for their projects? Because you said that you had to raise some money for 
the Never Stand Still documentary. Um, what is it like fundraising for documentaries in general, and is it any different for dance documentaries? Well, it's challenging, and I think there's no direct answer to this because I think every film has its own opportunities and its own challenges. Um, I think dance films in particular are very difficult to fundraise around because there's not a huge distribution or outlet uh, to many of them. I've raised a fair amount of money in, in terms of supporting these films, but we've always, as a company, we've done a huge amount of heavy lifting and, and, and supporting them uh, where financially we would um, be value-added to the whole process, i.e. If we, if we raised $10, we made it, we turned it into 50 because we would put our own sweat equity back into the film. Mm-hmm. So I would say anybody to, to anyone, if you think this is a, um, a profit center, um, I would look, look elsewhere. Definitely. But if you really love making performance films, um, the first and foremost thing, and again, access is really important. If you have an opportunity and access to something, you know, if you can figure out any way to at least shoot it, even if you don't have the edit budget, you're not sure where it's going to go or how it's going to evolve, just get that first layer of filming or or whatever it is the project um, can provide, do it. Just take a leap of faith and do it. Because to this day, if the men of dance had not been shot, if we had not interviewed these eight men coming back um, and their experiences of all this effort they made back in the 30s, it wouldn't exist. It just wouldn't be there. So I just think you got to take a little leap of faith. And then getting back to the uh, opportunities for fundraising, principally everything I've ever done is making a trailer, uh, shooting enough where I can represent not just a, a pitch on, or a written document, but really film enough to give an investor some insight, some point of view that you bring to it that makes this something special. And by making a trailer, like anything else, it, it, it represents the potential of what you're doing. And then you incrementally raise money against that. That sounds like sound advice. Just do it. It's not always that easy, but yeah. I, I, I do think it's important to do. I envy filmmakers today in general or students today in filmmaking because, you know, when I was coming up, access, even the example of that port pack equipment, there wasn't a lot of equipment available. The access to get real professional, high-quality video equipment was um, there was a barrier to entry. You had to have some access or be involved in a college program or university program or work for NBC or CBS or whatever. It wasn't like out there. And today, the the ability to acquire equipment or get a fairly good camera at a modest price and start go out there and start filming is much more accessible than it was when I was coming up. I mean, we, I, I would spend my early part of my career, I, I worked on sets, I worked on anything I could get my hands near the equipment or near cameras or lighting or whatever because that's how you learned, that's how you got trained. And I was very fortunate early on to work with a lot of talented people, you know, people who really taught kind of a, an apprenticeship of filmmaking. That's great. Initially, you had a mentor. Well, I've had people that have influenced me, and I certainly have learned my craft by being around people that, that do it. Um, you know, I think 
I think I think college, like anything, is a great place to be exposed to film and exposed to the arts or exposed to whatever you're doing. But until you get out in the real world and work with professional people, you don't really get it or you don't really understand the dynamics or the mechanics behind why you do certain things until you're there. I would tell anybody that take those jobs that you think are dead-end jobs, but, you know, just get there. I mean, get in that, that, in that, you know, current of people and activity. And even if you're just a PA handing out walkie-talkies, you know, look around, see who's doing what, learn who, how jobs work, how crews work, who, who does what, and not just in terms of departments being a grip versus a sound person being a camera person, but the integration of all of that. And um, I, I think that's where you start learning the craft and, and start seeing how all of this is integrated. Um, I also think that as much as production is, is crucial, because without production you don't have the, 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 you know, the starting point of making a film, but post-production, um, I'm not an editor by trade, but I've spent most of my career in edit rooms working with editors, and I have a huge gratitude towards an, a really good editor. And um, I, I consider myself an editor, not technically because I'm not the guy at the edit system pushing the buttons, but I'm always involved working very, very closely with editors. And it's also wonderful to have another viewpoint in the room, another... Um, a uh, person who sees things slightly differently. And most importantly, editors generally aren't on location with you. They're, they're, they don't see the footage the same way you do because they didn't spend the five hours that day to get that particular shot. Right. So they can look at it and say, ah, ain't that good. We don't need that. Yeah. And you're, you know, so attached, attached to, to that that effort and, and the shot that had to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. So editors are really a wonderful, I mean, A, they, they add value to the art of storytelling and what they do. And they can amplify your your work and your effort. But they, they also give you this um, uh, incredible point of view that... Um, you know, is needed because you you know making films you get very myopic you get very so inside mm-hmm. that sometimes you got to step back absolutely and see the bigger the bigger thing yeah that yeah. makes sense and that's really great advice so tell us more or tell me more since it's just me and not Clara <laughs> about your company moving pictures and over the years what have been some projects that you've particularly enjoyed working on. I think one of the things that I think we can clearly uh, say that in this industry called television, uh, there's a huge diverse product or diverse programming you can get involved in. And I think each each thing is unique and, and you learn or see something different from. So um, I've had the opportunity to work for some traditional uh, programming strands. Um, I've, I've done work for CBS Reports, and I've done documentaries, and, and I should add these, these. Some of these projects were when I was a, 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 a production person, a crew person. I wasn't directing or producing these. I was a guy helping make these. I was part of a crew uh, generating this work. So I got to work with some really great directors and some really good people. Um, 
And I guess what I'm trying to say is the range of work is really what was exciting. I mean, we did everything from, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've done some sports work. Uh, I did a story once for HBO Sports on the on the uh, Dodgers, uh, the original uh, baseball team, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. We traveled all over the country and interviewed the Dodgers that were living back when they, you know, when we made this film. Oh, that's great! And it was just fascinating to, again, similar to in some ways the men of dance because exactly. it was these people who witnessed uh, an op, you know a, a, a business or in this case a sport that was in really a, an amazing apex of, of what they you know what what they were doing. Yeah, and um, that ties again to your interest in historical context. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but then I've, I've done children's programming. I, I did a, a, a lot of seasons where um, we did Sesame Street, but I didn't do the studio part of Sesame Street. We were, uh, I was hired at the time to my company to shoot a lot of the location stuff for Sesame Street. So we would shoot Big Bird Goes to Camp or Big Bird Goes to Russia or whatever. So <laughs> we, most of my background, uh, which takes me back to documentaries, is shooting in the field. I mean, I've certainly shot in the studio as well. Well, but what I really know well is is shooting on location in locations all over the world. I also did a lot of music going back to performing arts. The thing that I, I really did a great deal of is is music um, uh, performance work and music work. Uh, so, I mean, in 1980, I was in London shooting Pink Floyd for European television. Oh, um, great. I, I shot uh, uh, Springsteen in the early days for Columbia Records. I, I've done a lot of work with... Uh, um, you know, uh, a lot of different artists, a lot of, a lot of different, uh, musicians. Um, Dave Matthews was a, a band for RCA records. We did a, you know, a couple of years of work with consistently. So I've done a lot of ca multi-camera, um, coverage of a live performance work, uh, mm -hmm. where I directed, you know, uh, um, you know, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 12 to 15 cameras of, 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 of an event, of, of a performance. Um, and I still do that kind of work. I, I still enjoy that type of work. I don't do as much music and rock and roll as I used to, and I regret that. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's what happens, I guess. Um, so what is it like starting your own production company, and what have been some challenges and some joys along the way with that? Well, I think the challenge of running any business is you, you start realizing it's a business and you start realizing that you're involved in not only the process of, uh, uh, you know, I came to this as a, as a person who wanted to make films or wanted to at least, you know, be active in the production and, and post-production um, work. Um, when you make a decision to then start your own business, you then take on all the other responsibilities and, and, and challenges of, of, of running a business, hiring people, paying people, uh, maintaining um, all kinds of compliance. If you want to learn about, you know, uh, you know the, the challenges of running a small business in Manhattan, you know, you anyone who's done it will tell you there are enormous challenges with, with compliance between um, everything from taxation to uh, sales certificates to how you get equipment to insurances to, you know, on and on and on. So I actually experienced about seven, eight years ago, um, I was really aware that I, the very reason I came into the business, I was, I was so preoccupied running the company and making sure, 
we were maintaining our, our overhead and, and executing the work that we were involved in, I was starting to move away from the creative day-to-day because I was managing, I was producing, I was all interesting things. But I made a clear decision about eight years ago where I wanted to go back to the roots of why I got into this industry. And I shifted. I, I, I frankly downsized my company a little bit. I, I got my overhead a little more manageable because at one point we were doing very well, but we were spending as much money as we could make. And it, it seemed like you were just, you know, yeah. in the hamster cage a bit. Right. So these days uh, we still have moving pictures is still active. We, we uh, work with a tremendous amount of freelancers and people that we've worked with through the years or the decades. Um, but we have less people on staff. We have less edit rooms that we used to have, um, that technology has shifted, how we work, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, I just finished a show where th- three quarters of what I did was on Skype working with three designers from three different places in the country. Mm-hmm. And we were all able to integrate, uh, that effort, uh, virtually. So that's different. That's, you know, back in the day, you used to have all three of those people in your space, you know, at their workstations, overseeing all that. And really talented people want to work how they work. They want to work in their studio or in their space, or they don't want to commute, or they don't want to travel, or whatever it is. So, again, the technology we have today allows us to um, really formulate new, new ways to approach the work. And the collaboration can be very creative and very freeing. Um, so that's that's exciting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we were happy to see that one of your TV credits was Saturday Night Live. Um, what was the work that you did with them, and what was that like? Back in the original uh, days of, of Saturday Night Live, there was a creative writer who, actually the head writer of Saturday Night Live was a, was a, a guy named Michael Donahue. And Michael Donahue is a guy that comes out of National Lampoon, really, really dark humor kind of guy. But Michael was brilliant, and uh, he was given uh, a budget uh, by NBC to make his own little movie, and it was called uh, Mr. Mike's Mondo Video. And uh, it was a, a wacky, wacky, wacky project that he, <laughs> in, 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 you know, got involved in. And it's you know I can't even describe it, but it's <laughs> if it's it's around you can find it. It's called Mr. Mike's Mondo Mondo Video. Uh, Mike is long past. Uh, he unfortunately died many years ago, but he was a really um, fascinating guy to to watch and war- and work with, and mm-hmm. was a really really fun guy to be be around. How did you feel when you were contacted by Dance on Camera Festival that they were going to be showing? your documentary from 30 years ago about Ted Sean, The Men Who Danced. What are you looking forward to in the Dance on Camera Festival, and what did that feel like when they contacted you about it? Well, this is really, I think, uh, a real privilege to be honored. Not that I'm being honored, but the film is being uh, re-looked at. I mean, 30 years later, for have something that you made um, to be revisited and, and, and screened at a festival like the Dance on Camera is, is really a, a wonderful honor. And I'm so pleased that it's being uh, revisited, if you will. And um, I, I, I think it says more about the film than it does certainly about me. Uh, I'm just really excited that um, 
again, a document that was made so long ago still has validity or, or interest to be screened and looked at. I mean, so I mean, there's so many things I have made through the years that I would never want to watch again. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that this had some staying power, it, that it had um, uh, enough soul just underpinning to be to to be viewed 30 years later. And, and if the story is there, if the narrative and, and again, the access to a subject is there and you can bring it to, a, to an audience with a point of view, uh, production value really takes second, second place. What do you have in store for future goals or are there any future projects that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'm involved in a film right now, which uh, is a dance film. Um, it's a bigger scope film. Um, it, it's um, it's called Into Sunlight, and it's a film based on a book that David Marinus wrote. David Marinus is an author and a uh, a journalist for, uh, for the Washington Post, and David is an amazing writer. And he wrote a book a couple years back um, about the Vietnam War. And the book is set in 1967. And David really looked at uh, what was going on in America during that pivotal point in the war when the first student riots were starting to happen here in the States, the, the, the reaction to the war, the pro protesting of the war, and also this particular events that he, he, he wrote to or, or, or researched about this group of elite rangers that were really caught in a very bad ambush in, in, in Vietnam, and uh, uh, many of which died. So around the time that the United States decided to go to war again uh, in Iraq, this choreographer, Robin Becker, who's become a really uh, great friend and wonderful you know, choreographer, Robin Becker was so, as an artist, so uh, concerned about here we go again, having come out of the Vietnam era herself in the sense of protesting the war and feeling war didn't solve problems. As a choreographer, she read David's book and was so moved by it. She called David up and said, David, I'd like to choreograph a dance about your book. And David said, well, you know, my books have been translated to many, many languages around the world, but I've never had anyone ever ask me to turn my book into, and, and we're taking, it's not a literal, you know, uh, translation, but using this this um, book as the basis of, of choreographing a piece. So that dance is called Into Sunlight, and it's the backdrop of, of this period, um, and um, it's a kind of a big story, but basically uh, we shot the first performance in Manhattan about two years ago with the company, and since then, they've been invited to go to Vietnam. So I just came back from Vietnam, and we've, we filmed in three different cities um, in, in Vietnam. And it's, it's, it's about this particular movement and this piece that Robin created, but it's really about the impact of the piece on the populations and the people that watch the piece. And these include veterans and, and people who have been in conflict and in wars, and it includes the Vietnamese people who were so closely tied to these events. And um, it, it's, um, again, it's a, it has historical perspective, um, but it explores it through the communication of dance. Mm -hmm. That's great. So 
we are done shooting that film, and I'm right now raising money to edit it. So if anyone out there is interested <laughs> in a dance Vietnam film, <laughs> we're in the process of raising some money to, to finish the film. So anyway, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's likewise. Really interesting. Thank and you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. And listeners, look for Clara and I at Dance on Camera Festival at Lincoln Center on Saturday, February 13th. We are hosting a pas de deux takeover in which we're going to interview filmmakers and audience members. So if you happen to be attending, look for us with the microphones, and we'd love to get your feedback. Thank you, everyone.